If it's a new process, if it's a new paradigm, even if it's a new golf swing, it's going to be uncomfortable. Just because it's uncomfortable doesn't mean it's wrong. And I think that's so hard to remember when it's uncomfortable. When it's uncomfortable, we stop breathing, we hold our breath, right? And breath is the key to grounding ourselves in wisdom and discernment. So even if you just remember to breathe through the discomfort and land in your belly, feel your feet on the ground, it can be that helpful. Welcome to Personalized by Vitamin Lab, the show where we dive deep into the world of personalization in healthcare. I'm your host, Dr. David Dyser. Please remember that the following discussion is for educational purposes only, and it's not intended to diagnose or treat any disease. Speak with your healthcare practitioner first before integrating anything that you learn today. Join us as we explore the remarkable stories, breakthroughs, and possibilities that come with the pursuit of personalized healthcare. Welcome back to Personalized. I'm your host, Dr. David Dyser. Thanks so much for tuning into the show. On today's show, I spoke with Connie Phoenix, renowned executive coach, change consultant, and co-author of A Walk Into Wisdom, Inspiring with Art and Words. As a clinic owner, I value my chats with Connie immensely, and she's been a wealth of knowledge for me. In Connie's leadership coaching, she intuits the hidden potential in each client, co-creating a customized approach for the person to access their inner wisdom and awaken the leader within. Her approach really comes through in today's episode, and I think it's going to be valuable for those clinic owners out there looking to build a grounded approach, to bring a grounded approach to personalization, both in their medicine as well as in their clinic building. I enjoyed Connie's book and have a copy of it in my office for patients to look through. I really hope you enjoy today's chat with Connie Phoenix. Enjoy the show. Hello there. I'm here with Connie Phoenix. Hi, Connie. How are you today? I'm well. Glad to be here. Great. Good to see you. Welcome to Personalized. Thanks for being on the show. We're thrilled to have you today. On the show, we talk about personalized care and individualized medicine. And when I heard about your background and the book that you were writing, I was excited to have you on because I think we create space for people in our practices. We create space to help them discover what a holistic approach might look like. And you write about wisdom. And I think when we create that space, we need to be tapping into our own personal wisdom to help guide the holistic approach. The practitioner should, I think, open the space for that. And so you're an expert on wisdom with an organizational development background, executive management, change management. And I thought it would be a great, great conversation for us to sort of discuss wisdom in the context of integrative medicine and naturopathic medicine. And so I'd love to start the show by learning about how this book came to be. The book is called A Walk Into Wisdom. How did this book come to be for you, Connie? You know, <laughs> I think it's been a lifelong journey because I'm the kind of person who always has challenged the status quo, not from a place of rebellion, but from a place of knowing that there's something better. And so even my journey into finding alternative practitioners for my own well-being started about 30 years ago. And that was because I knew there was something else. And I guess in hindsight, I would call that wisdom. I think that it's not about right or wrong, that old practices are necessarily wrong. I think they get us to where we're going, but I think they're incomplete. Mm. And I like to think of it as incomplete. So it was like I sensed there was a more non-interventionist way that I could heal. And so I pursued that. Right. So over the decades, I continued to pursue that and continued to heal without a lot of intervention. And so that led me, actually during the pandemic, to say to myself, what's happening in our world? This is more than a medical crisis. This is more than a meltdown of the healthcare system. There's something more here. I don't know if you know the song by Leonard Cohen, but he says, there's a crack in everything. There's a crack in everything. It's how the light gets in. Mm. It's how the light gets in. And for me, I was like, 
is the light getting in? Is the light getting in yet? You know, it's almost like a kid on Christmas morning. Is the light getting in yet? Because I truly see that breakdown and breakthrough look the same. Mm. And so, okay, I chose to look at this as breakthrough at that point in time. So I started studying with a colleague about how do we help our clients break through? How do we come to this way of not rebelling against but what is or what was, but how do we look at completing the information? And we're so reliant in our world on information and knowledge, mm. facts, figures, data. Facts, figures, data, always new facts, figures, and data. And yet there's something underneath that that's incomplete. Yes, that is the case, and that is incomplete. There's something more. And so we started to dig into writers that we've loved over the years where talk about, you know, there is another way. There is a deeper underlying way, you know, from books called Go Deep to looking at theories of evolution. And so we decided that this would be an emergent process. We both survived in the corporate world long enough. You know, you set goals, you set objectives, then you develop a strategy with tactics and you reach it. And we decided no, because that is the way that we want to leave behind. We don't think it has the answers for us in the future, albeit it served us very well at times. So how do we do that? And so we started to say, okay, this is going to be an emergent process. We had no idea when we started this in 2020 that it would lead to a book. That would have been the last thing I ever would have dreamed of. It wasn't my intention. It was just, let's follow the breadcrumbs. Let's just follow these breadcrumbs and see where they lead us. And so one thing led to another, and we started to hear the word wisdom floating around. As you know now, you search wisdom, do a Google search for wisdom, and you come upon all kinds of things. It's way more common. And we used to think, well, what if our clients accessed wisdom when they made a decision, mm -hmm. along with information and data? What would happen then? And so we said, well, let's interview ourselves about our own experience with our own wisdom. We did and ended up interviewing 35 people. Oh my goodness. About their experience with wisdom. What is, what's wisdom to them? And ended up with a lot of data, information, and knowledge. And yet there was something profound about it. So we set out on a retreat to do something with all this grounded research. And then I had a dream. And in the dream, I saw the book and walked in my office and there was a book on my bookshelf, which was exactly the kind of thing that I could see in my mind's eye that we could do with this. So there we have the book. So that's a very long answer to your question, David, but it's really been a lifelong journey in hindsight. Absolutely. No, I think it's an, a, a really well communicated answer to that question. And it allows me to step into the different stages that really took place before this book came out. And I'd like to go back all the way to your childhood because, you know, I'm raising young kids. Yeah. And the way you describe your introduction into alternative care makes me think about your intuition development and your ability to think outside the box and think that there might be something more. And maybe think that I had someone say yesterday about there not being preventative care in the conventional system, maybe able to step into or acknowledge the fact that some things are not there for the purpose we think they're there for. Like the conventional system is really not there for prevention on, on its whole. How did you develop that intuition? Was that something that you had as a child or was instilled or developed in some way? I've been reflecting on this myself because I think one of my gifts, albeit I didn't see it a gift at the time, was my deep sensitivity. I remember knowing what was going on for people in the sense that I knew something was wrong or something was concerning to them. And I could feel that, I guess, as an empath. And so, I mean, I remember getting report cards where the teacher would write almost every year, Connie's a very sensitive student. And I really didn't like that. I mean, I was like, oh, 
what does that mean? Mm-hmm. And I don't think my parents knew what it meant, but it was something that was just constantly with me. And I remember things like at the cottage, we had neighbors who came to the cottage on the weekends. And I looked over at their cottage and I sensed there's something wrong at that cottage. They're not there. That's not our usual friends. So Mm -hmm. I said to my mom and dad, there's somebody at that cottage. I think they've broken in. We need to report that. And my mom says, oh, Connie, don't be so suspicious. You know what you mean? Maybe they're just neighbors. I said, but mom, it doesn't feel right. So anyway, I forgot about it. She forgot it. And the next weekend, the neighbor came over and he happened to be a police sergeant. And he said, you didn't see anybody in our cottage next door. It was broken into last weekend. Oh, my goodness. And my mom said no. And then I heard the conversation. So I came running to the door and I said, yes, I told mom somebody was breaking into that cottage. And unbeknownst to my mom, I'd gone and got the license plate of the car that was in front of the cottage the weekend. So, Oh, my goodness. They were able to track the person down. So it was like, I think those kinds of things reinforced by my own experience, not by anybody else. And then uh, I remember I must have been about age eight. And I walked into the dining room. My mom was polishing the floors. You polished hardwood floors at that point in time. And um, all of a sudden, I just stopped. And I had this knowing that there was important work I needed to do in the world. And I spent the rest of the next three decades trying to figure out what that work was. You know, is it a lawyer? Is it a doctor? No, none of those I could relate to, you know. So again, in hindsight, I look back and think there were signs all along. I think it's really important. I mean, I have a seven-year-old who had the exact same thing written on her report card about being sensitive and in tune with others. And I don't think it was common for the teacher to see that. And, And she challenges the status quo like she's 13 every single day. And I'm trying to help her tap into that intuition and help her develop it in some way. It sounds like you were able to learn from your experiences and double down on trusting yourself. And that turned into something that was really valuable through these breakthroughs, maybe. Yes, I think so. And and as you're talking, I'm reflecting my grandfather was my support system. I would often go to my grandparents for lunch because my parents were involved in the medical world and they were both full-time career people. And I would come in at noon hour and I would tell my grandpa what was wrong with the school system. (laughs) And he would say, okay, he would say, these are my initials, CLP. He would say, CLP on the air. Okay, you have 10 minutes and we're all going to sit and listen intently to what you have to say. And then we'll have lunch. And I think that reinforcement of my own voice and my own truth had something to say. Allowing you to speak it. Allowing me to speak, yeah. Mm -hmm. And then you can hear it and build on your own experience of that. Oh, I like that. Okay, I think that's really valuable. And we try to do that in clinical practice. We open up with these you know, sort of open-ended questions. We open it up to the patient in front of us and we let them explore it. And I was saying on a, a, a show recently, when I ask people about what they do for fun, often it's silence and they have to contemplate what that means. And then the next time they come back, this is something I didn't go into. The next time they come back, they will remember, even though I don't ask very commonly, hey, I started doing some fun things. Here's what they are. <laughs> this is what I like to do. No one's right. ever asked, you know, no one's ever asked. No one's ever created that space where a person could think and maybe try to describe something about themselves. That could be incredibly valuable. I think it's the same thing with sleep. I have no idea why they can't sleep. And then as they're describing it or going through their routines, very often they'll pick something up that they know is a no-no. Two glasses of water before bed, the scariest news stories ever, all these typical things that people think of. Mm -hmm. But it's not really until you say it out loud, right, that, that you can have that breakthrough. Is that part of the emergent process? You use this term, and I'm I'm actually trying to study organizational change right now and change management and executive work. And I haven't heard about this term before. Can you describe the emergent process and what that means to you? Mm -hmm. How did I come to the emergent process? I think it's through trying to bring forward and honor more of my feminine energy. 
Mm. You know, as I say, I've lived, worked in the corporate world for many decades, and it's very goal-oriented, structured, logical, rational with a process. And I learned that really well. And I realized that that doesn't work so well in relationship, um, whether it's developing relationships with a client, whether it's developing relationships with kids, with a partner. There's something missing in that. It's more honoring of what's here right now, mm. what's present right now, and not being so concerned with getting to over there. I've also been studying intention, and I believe now to hold the intention is really important, to believe in the dream, to know that something is going to come out of this, whatever this is. And then if I can be present within myself and pay attention, show up, pay attention, and don't be attached to the outcome. Right. I think that's what it means to be emergent. And then it's like a breadcrumb will fall in front of you, and it's like an aha moment. Oh, yes, of course, that's what I'm going to do next. Mm -hmm. And then doing that, and then going through the same process, showing up, paying attention, not being attached to the outcome, and ah, something falls off the shelf. Okay, that's what we need to be doing. And so it, it's very much a process driven by faith that you're going to get an answer, mm -hmm. trust that you're going to get an answer, that something will emerge. And where courage comes, it's never in our timing, right? rarely in our timing. So that doesn't work very well. At least it seems that doesn't work very well when we're looking at bottom lines. Mm. But do we want to take the short term to a bottom line or do we want to trust the long term? And that's, again, where the courage comes. I hear you. Let's dive into this courage because what comes up for me is two things. The first is a quote in your book from William James that says, in this process, you have to, wisdom may be a knowing of what to overlook. That's the first one. So you're in this emergent process and things come up. How do we know what to overlook? And the second piece, the second piece is what happens when it's uncomfortable? What do we do? What do we do with that feeling? How do we then you know, kind of revert back to part one, which is tapping into what maybe we should be looking at. Can you help me a little bit with those two things? Let's start with one that's common to me is when it feels uncomfortable. Because I think if it's a new process, if it's a new paradigm, even if it's a new golf swing, it's going to be uncomfortable. Just because it's uncomfortable doesn't mean it's wrong. And I think that's so hard to remember when it's uncomfortable. Even when it's uncomfortable, we stop breathing, we hold our breath, right? And right. breath is the key to grounding ourselves in wisdom and discernment. So even if you just remember to breathe through the discomfort and land in your belly, feel your feet on the ground, it can be that helpful. But I also think, for example, I've often wondered if we could have wisdom circles in corporations. So we make our decision, we bring our decision to a wisdom circle, and then we drop deep in our belly and say, is this really the decision? Mm -hmm. Or even to do that with you as I'm in your room as a patient in your office, and we look at a remedy, and then we drop into it and say, is this it, or is there something underlying that? I'm sure you're all the time, you're very good at the underlying. What's underlying this? You know, you talked about the sleep. We have the presenting problem, but then what's underlying that? Mm -hmm. That's the holistic. That's the emergent. What's underlying? And in your book, I see that it's framed as wisdom being a tool to innovate, to make ethical decisions or sound decisions and to commit to the resolution of conflict. So say we are in a scenario like this where we're having a wisdom circle or in a clinical practice, for example, where we could call every encounter a wisdom circle right? to a certain extent. That discomfort, we, we may need to make a very sound decision and a very what we may call ethical decision, but the person may need to make it for themselves, even though there's discomfort there. They say, a lot of people will say that the best things come 
freedom is on the other side of discomfort, for example, or comfort is on the other side of discomfort. But my question is always, how do I know if this uncomfortable thing is the right thing for me personally? And that's why I wanted to bring up that quote by William James, the knowing of what not to overlook. And part of me thinks it comes from experience. I'm, I'm in a program right now where if I had done this at 21, it would be a waste of time for me because I would have had no experience and I wouldn't be able to contribute, but also I would have thought everything was useless. But now, because I have so much experience, I think everything is incredibly valuable, everything that is being said. So do you think that in these types of wisdom circles, call it clinical practice, I'm the type of person who will reflect what a person is saying and try to help them hear themselves. How big of a role do you think experience plays in tapping into this? And where do we go from here to make these ethical or sound decisions, maybe as an organization or as a patient trying to help themselves? Yeah, I think the jury's still out for me on this one. We interviewed some clients and asked them, you know, what does wisdom mean to you? And they were very much experience-oriented. I think we can have lots of experiences. Isn't necessarily always the wisdom being accessed in those experiences. And then I think of the wisdom of your kids at the supper table where there's no experience and just a knowing. They do make very ethical decisions. Yeah. And so it's like, you know, out of the mouths of babes comes truth. And what happens that? I think the veils come down on that wisdom with all the knowledge, all the data, all the evaluation, all the measurement, all the judgment. And the discernment is lost when we start to second guess because we doubt ourselves in that doubting environment. And there's nothing wrong with questioning. It's like, I think we can do it in a way that validates a knowing and also honoring the knowing and not making that knowing wrong. And if, let's say, you make a decision, it's the wrong decision. We learn from that. As long as we learn from something, I don't think it's a failure. Mm -hmm. I don't think it was wrong. I think it was learning. Now, when it gets to life and death questions, I mean, we really have to be very grounded in our knowing around that. But most of us are not making life and death decisions. How do we tolerate or live within the data that we have? Or what has been your experience with the impacts of social media and the internet and now AI? on this tapping into wisdom or on maybe the lack of the use of wisdom in in an organizational structure. Right now, my obsession is creating good services for society, reducing environmental impact and practicing good governments and ethical governance. And sometimes the data doesn't tell the whole story. And oftentimes in medical care, it doesn't tell the whole story. You can be within normal limits, but that could literally mean nothing Mm -hmm. for the person in front of you. It could have a very small tumor that is not measured by this thing. What do we do with this data, with this experience we're having with all of the information that's available? Well, I think hence the need for more wisdom for sure. And I think that, I mean, if I had my way and I was developing education curriculum, we would be on this one. I don't think it's always the case. And that's not to say I'm against AI in any way or against information. In any sense, I think it's part of the information. It's part of our decision-making criteria, if you will, but it's not all of it. Again, it comes back to that incomplete information. And even pursuing that, you know, with someone, that makes sense. I can understand why you want to make your decision based on that. And is there anything else that might be underlying that. And then I think that's where if we can learn to drop deep down into our own wisdom, which is really a matter of embodiment, you know, like resting in our pelvic bowl and just dropping out of that head because so often we cut off here and we don't pay attention and our body is really the source of all of our information, whether it's through sensations or whether it's through your your spine, you know, or goosebumps, or your heart palpitating. It's like, okay, what's going on here? What's a yes for me? What's a no for me? Deep down in my being. Right. Not in my head. Deep down in my being. I see that with my athletes. You know, when we're doing fitness assessments for athletes to see if we can find where their limitation is, 
so we can optimize training, remove those limitations. But sometimes there's a qualitative aspect. And that qualitative aspect may be the intent at the end. The power output is highly dependent on being able to consciously engage the nervous system and to be willing to go to your limit. And with athletes, especially with agility athletes, where every single movement is all out, it's everything you have, but in a, in a controlled manner so that you can perform the minutia, the minute uh, aspects of the movements, but it's all out with these yeah. athletes. And so much of that is dependent upon intent, which I think can be really drawn from when contemplating wisdom or contemplating the desire, contemplating why we're doing something. And this type of practice could be valuable for athletes as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. In fact, most of my wisdom comes on the yoga mat. You know, it's like... There we go. That's where I'm seated on mm -hmm. that mat. And if I need something, oftentimes I have to go to that mat just to put myself into that energetic place and allow it to happen. Vitamin Lab revolutionizes personalized supplements, empowering health practitioners to create tailored supplement formulations that address each patient's unique needs. Bring personalized health to your practice and choose from over 200 professional-grade ingredients to create vitamin formulas that improve patient adherence and result in tangible outcomes. All ingredients are sourced from the world's most trusted suppliers, and Vitamin Lab provides hands-on support to help you formulate and launch personalization to your patients. Say hello to a new era of personalized supplement solutions. Go to getvitaminlab.com slash personalized to save $100 off your first formula. And allow it to happen. My favorite thing I really got from your book was the subtle nudge for me to get back into contemplation. I have found in my life that the one thing that works for me in conflict resolution, in problem solving, in any sort of, I wouldn't say advancement, but bringing something new and something exciting to my life is the contemplation, knowing that if we sit in silence and create space for ourselves, we can find what that thing is. And what I find with your book, and the reason I like it so much is it has this, this sort of dual nature to the contemplation aspect. If you're going to close your eyes and think, what are the questions we're contemplating? It's like active meditation. Mm -hmm. You have the questions to contemplate, and then you have the art that accompanies the chapters. Can you speak to that contemplation and maybe first dive into if you, obviously I think that you do, but I'm not 100% sure. If you like sort of that contemplation to be guided by a question, it was at the purpose here. I think there are many on-ramps, you know, to wisdom. And contemplation of a question is one of them. Contemplation without a question is another one. I mean, I think that our intelligence, I'm not talking about IQ, I'm, I'm talking about emotional and spiritual intelligence as well, is so precise, is so well honed that we need to just allow it to emerge sometimes. It's like as a painter, sometimes I, I can often work on three different canvases at the same time, and one informs the other. So it's like I may have a question that I go in with, but there's something else I've been contemplating will actually inform and come through my being at that point in time, because it's, it's more what I need to be paying attention to. I think if the question is uh, one that resonates in your heart and soul, as well as in your head, for sure, ask it mm -hmm. and go for it. And I think you'll get your answers at many different levels. Mm -hmm. You know, like there's so many levels of consciousness and awareness. And sometimes we need lower level of consciousness because we're living in this third dimension. Absolutely. I need to tell you what works for me because I'm such a newbie and, and so underdeveloped in this area. The only thing that works for me is this question of what would this look like if it were easy? Mm, nice. That's the one thing that works for me. And I try to use it. I don't really say it out loud too much, but with patients in front of me, and I think practitioners might get a little bit out of this, but talking about sleep and stress and energy, exercise and following nutrition plans, taking your supplements on time, you know, committing to a medication course what would this look like if it were easy? And when I sit back with that, the answers come. 
a lot of people still find discomfort in that. Your book has opened up my eyes to a series of other questions, which I'll be using. So thank you for that. You know, I think one of the best ways to sabotage oneself is to think you have to answer all those questions. <laughs> I would say like for anybody else who's listening, just take the question that jumps out at you and go for that one. For sure. I'm, I'm, I'm all in. Don't you maybe, maybe mine feels uncomfortable. <laughs> The other part that I like about this is the art piece, because I've been trying to think about this for my own life as well. And we're, as you may know, we're opening up a second location and we need to have some art and eventually we'll be likely moving this location to a new place. And we want it to feel like a space of, for healing. And that I believe could be enhanced by having art that maybe speaks to the healing nature of what we're doing. But what you've done with your book is attached art to um, each chapter. Could you speak a little bit to that and why that was important to you and your co-author? Well, I've dabbled in the world of art for about five years. Again, I never saw myself as being an artist, but I realized that for me, creativity is healing. I am out of my mind. I'm out of what might be a diagnosis. I'm out of anybody else's world on the internet or otherwise about what kind of work that's going to take, whether that's curable or incurable. Mm. I don't want to be influenced by that. And so it's like, okay, as I paint, I drop down and I allow the painting to come through me. I don't sit down to paint a landscape or I don't sit down to paint anything. It's just what emerges through me. So whatever comes out Maybe it's an emotion that's released onto the paper. Then I don't have to deal with that. I don't have to lie awake in the middle of the night and create insomnia for myself in that sense. Or I can contemplate one of those questions that we were talking about. Drop down, ask myself that question. And typically I see a color. I might see a shape. And then I bring that forward and put it on paper, and I think it helps in the integration right. of that knowing, which I think is also a really important part, that we allow that knowing to be embedded and integrated. And so if it's you get up and move, just move to a shape you might have seen in your exploration or your contemplation. That moves energy. And as we know, as you move energy, healing happens. Definitely. Yeah. Why are we not asking our kids to meditate or run three kilometers? We're putting a canvas in front of them mm -hmm. and allowing them just to paint whatever comes. Yeah. And as an adult, do we really need to practice endurance, you know, athletics in order to feel that endorphin, to feel that sense of ease, to tap into this meditative aspect of exercise? Because that's what people talk about, right? I feel best after I exercise. And then for people who don't exercise, often we're encouraging them to do that for this one purpose, the mental emotional purpose. Mm -hmm. But what about art? Do you have suggestions for people who aren't practicing or don't have an art therapy practice? I wouldn't even, we don't even need to call it therapy, but don't practice art. What would be a first step to tap into this type of creativity? What do you recommend? Well, typically the thought form that comes up is I can't do this. I was never good at mm -hmm. school in art and my right. teacher never, you know, or my parents didn't put it on the fridge when I brought it home or those kinds of things. And I think is, again, that's just a head. That's just information. That's not who you are. That really doesn't have anything to do with our creativity other than limited. So I would even go, whatever you're called to, watercolors, acrylics, cheap paint, it doesn't have to be expensive, doesn't have to be a canvas. It can be a canvas. You can take a newspaper and start to paint over it and come up with some really interesting things. It's just a matter of doing it. Show up, pay attention to what's coming through and let go of the outcome because the editor will come screaming through, particularly in art, in our school experiences. Typically, some of us, whether it's art or music, have had a negative mm -hmm. thought form thrown at us in that way. And just allow it. You don't have to show it to anybody. Have a little sketchbook that you take with you on a holiday. Or when you go out for a walk and just sit down on a park bench and sketch the tree. And notice how grounded the tree is. And feel the energy of the tree. It's so much about the experience 
rather than what shows up on the canvas. The letting go of the outcome. You know, as soon as you start letting go of one thing, it becomes easier to let go of other things because you know you have a little bit of practice. Hey, I made the worst thing in the world to me as from my critical eye right now, but we can let that go. And now all of a sudden, it's really easy to let things go that maybe are being verbally placed in your direction. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, my art teacher used to say to me, draw the worst, ugliest painting you can. Mm-hmm. Well, that gives me a lot of permission. Mm-hmm. And sometimes your best product comes out of that, if that's what you want. I'm doing the same thing right now with writing, mm-hmm. where we, you know, we just have a time limit. Yeah. That's all that's there. There's a limitation. It's time. And you have to get this number of words down in this period of time. Whatever comes out, comes out. Who cares? And that's been really helpful for me. I used to have this timer app on my computer that prevented me from continuing after a certain amount of time. And those type of restrictions really start to build that freedom. You know, whatever it takes for me to hack the system can be valuable. For other people, that's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Uh, but for my brain, it's incredibly valuable. So I think helping people find that thing has been something that I'm passionate about and I'll try to continue to do. Art can be incredibly inspiring and can open up new thought processes and thought patterns. And I feel like the way that it accompanies the quotes in your book, for me, is incredibly valuable. Just reading a quote on the page can really not settle in. It cannot stick. It cannot resonate too much. But having the art on the page allows you to stop and look. It's like when you're reading to kids and you want to read the page and then you want to wait (laughs) and have them make sure they're looking at the photos and checking it out and seeing what they feel. I feel like this is a version of that for adults. Was there any intention around that? Absolutely. I mean, that's what we wanted people to do. And people have different learning styles. You know, some of us are visual learners and some of us are kinesthetic learners. It may be that you feel something as you look at it. It may be that you see something in it that you hadn't seen before. I think that's really important. Maybe a color that speaks to you, a shape that speaks to you. But absolutely, we had that. In fact, in our wisdom circles, we've had a couple of wisdom circles we're experimenting with. And one of the things that I guide people to do is drop into the floor, their pelvic floor, into what we know as the second chakra or the wisdom center, and just enter into spaciousness. You know when you're swimming out into the ocean and all that space is around you? Or for those people who are on the prairies, you walk out into the field and there's this unlimited sky and space. Now I just invite you to bring that space into yourself. And then when you're ready, come out and read the quote. Or if your eye's drawn to the artwork, go to the artwork and see if there's something there that adds Mm -hmm. to what it is you're contemplating. And I would say if you're an intellect and you like words, try the art for a while. Mm. Or if you're an artist, contemplate the words. Move out of the box. Move beyond the limitation of your usual ways of being and doing and see how that is. You can always come back to it. You don't have to stick with the other, but you can always come back to what it is that's most comfortable. But I think it's like when we're looking at new ways of being and doing, we have to push out beyond the box, beyond what it is we know. And that's, again, back to the courage and discomfort conversation that we've had. Yeah. Definitely. I've been trying to follow or learn about the top art pieces of all time, you know, how they're described as being the top. I mean, it's someone's judgment, but mm-hmm. one, of the, one of the artists that's present in this group created art where the person in the painting was looking out over a landscape in most of the, most of the art that was created. And you're looking at their back, but then you're looking at the landscape and you're contemplating what this person is kind of checking out. And I really like the message behind that because for me, it's like that guided meditation. It's like that questioning. It's like, it's not really telling you where to look, but it's letting you know you need to look. You need to actually try to experience the art subtly. It can happen. But for me, I need that little nudge. Yeah. I think your words have done that. And for a lot of people, maybe even practitioners watching, where we're, you know, giving directives, we're doing a little bit of the shoulding, you know, you should do this, you should do that. Mm-hmm. I think that encouragement to look 
is something that we can really get from this episode. So I thank you for that. Do you have any comments on that? Well, I, I'm just thinking about my own experience, you know, where um, when I first started working, I first started working with a homeopath and I was so intrigued because I would go back and he would say, well, what did you notice? Like, um, well, I'm not sure. And then I started to pay attention. And with each remedy, there was something that was another clue for him as my homeopath that he could pay attention to. And through that constant journey, I started paying attention. Oh, so rather than being attached to the outcome that this remedy is going to fix what I came in with, that symptom usually, right? <laughs> rather than the underlying issue. But okay, so, oh, this is like the game of Clue. That's the breadcrumbs. And I went, oh, oh, this is really exciting. I can get excited about my own healing by just paying attention, not catastrophizing, not worrying, just paying attention. Oh, here's something else that's come up. Aha. I wonder what this is about. Mm -hmm. It was like a wonder, the wonder, the awe of something. Wow. Yes. That factor for me was really, I guess it's a scientist in some ways inside of myself, was really excited by that. Really excited. And as more people begin to adopt integrative care and naturopathic medicine and sort of look outside of the conventional program and, and conventional, what we may call conventional wisdom, we want to be inspiring people to do that because they may not be familiar with what we're doing. And I think that the chapter on accessing that wisdom really resonated with me. And we've covered a lot, I think, of the points from the chapter already, but can you tell me a little bit about, through your interview process, what else you've learned about accessing wisdom that maybe we haven't covered already or builds upon what we have? Well, I think, um, you know, when I first got on sort of this personal growth and self-development, I actually went to a 12-step program. And I remember trying to convince my partner at the time that this was the route he needed to go. And, <laughs> you know, that was completely a lack of wisdom and absolutely full control on my part. But I was so passionate about it and what it was doing for me that I thought that it would be helpful for him. So there was a genuine intent in all of that in case he happens to listen to this podcast. <laughs> but I think that I see clearly there are many on-ramps. And just like each of us is a kinesthetic learner or a visual learner or an auditory learner, we all have our preferences. And so there will be some of these that speak to other people. I mean, some of the wisest people spend all their time in nature, paying attention to the patterns of nature, watching the sky, watching the weather, all of that can inform us, uh, our own being, to such an extent. After all, we're all made out of the same stuff. So let's pay attention. So that, that's one on-ramp. We mentioned yoga. We've mentioned meditation, mm -hmm. meditation and contemplation. I think there are nuances of difference between those and what does that mean. I think there's just a dropping down, actually taking a flashlight. I imagine a flashlight is shining at the top of my head all the way down through the front of my spine and all the way down to my pelvis and then down into the earth and just whew, allowing my breath to drop. Even as I say that, I can just feel my body just dropping down. Like how much fun for kids to do that, even as an adult for me to just, ah, oh, mm -hmm. oh, that feels good down here. It's good to be home, you know? There it is. Yeah. A lot of people ask integrated practitioners about Wim Hof breathing about different breathing techniques. They ask us also about these, these uncomfortable techniques, cold therapy, for example, and these really physical techniques that people get endorphin rushes from and this physiologic change that comes from the discomfort of, say, for example, a cold plunge. And I feel like what you're describing here is the next step. Say you go for a long run and you're feeling the endorphin rush. Can we then contemplate our own wisdom? Can we then use that physical change to settle in and to dip in. People are getting that from the breathing, of course, but most people are describing the physical change that they're experiencing. Hey, my energy's better. My energy's up. I feel more clear. And I feel like what you're describing and what I, I want to settle in 
to a little more with my with my patient base is the wisdom that can come from that and how that can be incredibly healing. Does that sound fair? Do you have anything you could add to build on top of that? Yes. And I, I mean, I've often heard friends of mine who are athletes say when they're in the zone, they sort of let go of the outcome. But when they're in the zone of the run, an answer will come to them. Or in the shower after the run, and maybe that's what you're talking about. There's a dropping down. There's a, okay, I'm more embodied now. Yes. And when I'm more embodied, my answers are clearer. My answers are truer. They're not so influenced by all that's going out here. And I don't want to make it sound like our mind isn't helpful. Our mind is great when it comes to implementing the solution. I can set a, an agenda for myself. I can give myself a goal. but it's not something that you're addicted to, right? which is what I see so many people just hanging on so desperately to the goal and not paying attention. I mean, the goal may be right. There may be something better than the goal. I don't know. Mm -hmm. I really don't know. There may be. There may be. And so I want to allow that to happen. I love it. Yeah. Let's go through a case where someone may have high blood pressure, high cholesterol, and be overweight. And we're asking them to do steps one through five. But maybe a better solution would be also here's the emergent process that could come if you try step number six. It may be easier or better for you in the long run to practice step one, steps one through five, or maybe find a different way to do it that suits you better because we're not in there, right? We're not, we're not in that body, in that soul. Mm -hmm. And so I think integrating this emergent process in a one-to-one setting could be incredibly valuable for that lifestyle change, for those pieces that really need to, they need to be altered. Let's face it. We need to go into a different path, whether it be eating or moving your body. These things have to happen, but change is hard. So my reason for going through this example is that you're an expert in organizational change and you have a long history in the corporate world. And I'm interested how we take those lessons and apply them on an individual level. And I think you've described a lot of that today. And I would like to know if my example sounds like something doable and how we could inspire that emergent process for someone without shooting on them. For example, you should go and do this emergent process. How do we create that space for someone? Mm -hmm. You know, I, I like to think it's both and. I think, well, I don't think, I know there are people who have a preference, what we call, to to use Jungian terms, sensation. So how they take in information and give information back out is a logical, realistic step one, step two, step three, step four. And outside of that, they feel anxious. So we don't want to create anxiety that's just going to help that blood pressure go even higher, right? And then there's Those other people who tend to have more of an intuitive sense. So they see things more conceptually, more abstract, more imagination, because it is the season. Let's say they see a Christmas parade and say, How was the parade? And they say, Oh, it reminds me of a time when grandpa used to take me to the Christmas parades and we'd get hot chocolate after. That was my favorite part hot chocolate and a cinnamon bun. And then there are other people saying, no, like how many floats were there? Did the boys and girls clubs have a float? Was Santa Claus there? What was Santa Claus dressed in? Were there marching bands? How many bands? What was your name of your favorite band? It's a whole different way of relating. And so I think as, a, as practitioners, whether it's at my business or your business, we can tune into that or even ask them, Mm. what do you prefer? Do you like me to tell you exactly how to take this? Or would you rather talk about what the outcome is going to be like when everything is better, when you've dropped however many pounds, when your blood pressure is there? Let's talk about that potential. Mm. Again, I think it can be both and. I, I would start with the familiar and then move to the other because chances are you probably need to tell me where I might be able to get that remedy, because I'll be so excited about how it's going to be. I won't even have heard you say where you can get that remedy. So, you know, it's like, okay, how how do we do this dance? And as a practitioner, you kind of try that out with people, ask them, you know, I think people know themselves well enough to tell you that. I love it. I'm into it. I'm I'm fully on board, Connie. 
You've described how to apply the emergent process to individualized care, and uh, you've changed my practice. That's what we always try to get out of continuing education in a podcast like this really is, is this going to impact my practice the following day? And I really do think that our discussion will. Your book, A Walk Into Wisdom, is going into the the waiting area for people to view before they come in. I, I was asked yesterday about how can we create a space where people can have a little bit of extra value from our practice before they come in, after they come in? What could it look like? And we have some ideas around objective measurements, but I think from a qualitative standpoint and from an inspirational standpoint, tapping into that intuition and wisdom, I think that the questions, the photos, and the writing that's in your book will be very valuable. So thank you. So where, Connie, can people purchase your book or learn more about you online? So the book is available at Amazon, amazon amazon.ca, Amazon around the world, actually. It's available now. We're working on getting it into bookstores, but right now that's not available. Um, So go to Amazon. And then um, my website is Connie at uh, ConniePhoenix.com is the email. ConniePhoenix.com is the website. And then we also have a website, a walk in wisdom.com. So you can check it out there as well. Yes. Excellent. Thank you so much. That's perfect. I, I, I hope everyone checks it out. Buy the book, support Connie. Thanks so much for your time today, Connie. I really appreciate you going through the different lessons and principles from the book. And and I quite enjoyed our conversation. So thank you so much. Oh, thank you. And thank everybody who listened. It's humbling. As I say, I never would have thought of myself as a writer, but it was a calling and I found the courage to listen to it. So thank you so much for um, your time as well. And we all benefited. Thanks, Connie. Great. Have a great day. Bye for now. Thanks for joining us for today's discussion. What about today's podcast resonated with you? Be sure to tag at Dr. David Dyser and at Get Vitamin Lab. If you're learning from and enjoying this podcast, please let us know by subscribing to our YouTube channel and follow the show on Spotify and Apple. And don't forget to leave us a review. It's the best way to support our podcast and it helps others find us. To learn more or book a demo to explore what personalization could do for your practice, please go to www.getvitaminlab.com slash personalized.